Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. I know this is probably going to sound like another odd episode, but that's because I have a work thing at the time that I, like a work event in the city at the time where I would usually be recording. So I um, wanted to, but I still wanted to release an episode because... I've obviously got a lot to talk about with this show that we're going to cover this week. But before that, I wanted to thank everybody who listened to the episode on Fall Metal Alchemist. Um, I obviously have a unique relationship with that show since it inspired the panel that I'm kind of known for. Which is, hilariously enough... Full Metal and Beyond, an exploration of disability anime in in anime, but I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to that episode because of that. So, without further ado, um, let's get into it. So, if you can't tell how kind of out of sorts I am this early morning talking and doing my podcast, I forgot to mention what we're talking about today, and that is the Netflix, Netflix quote-unquote original anime that just came out called Cannon Busters. Now, so Cannon Busters is based off of a comic series by a creator named LaShawn Thomas, who is notable for being a black comic book creator, and he penned the original story of Cannon Busters, and I believe he also directed this. Um, if not, he was definitely an executive producer of the whole thing. But he is the first credit when the show opens. And... The show's opening sequence, although not the first thing you see, is really the, has an energy that isn't common for anime. It's not totally unheard of. It just isn't common. Um, so, I think the best way to start talking about Cannon Busters is actually to start with its very clear influences so for those of you who've been listening for a while you know that I have talked about being old (laughs) and to be clear I'm not I'm not like old old but I'm certainly anime old and I'm certainly otaku old and that means that I've been watching anime for um let's say two decades at this point um, so I have seen a lot of anime, and there's a lot bouncing around in my head, and every once in a while, well not every once in a while, oftentimes, you see a show that has taken direct influence from another show, but what's really unique about Cannon Busters is that it is... Drawing influence from shows that were infamous in America in the 90s. So, sync your Trigon, sync your... 
think you're, and I'll give you, like, one-to-one examples. So, like, Trigon clearly has influenced the show's, like, future Western setting. Um, Outlaw Star has clearly influenced this show's general character archetypes and archetypes, relationships, and really some of how the story of the show goes. Um, and then you have like clear cowboy bebop references in the character design of Billy the Kid of Philly the Kid. Um and also some of his mannerisms and funnily enough the like gim his gimmick, his like superpower so to speak. Um but I, it was it was interesting watching Cannon Busters because it was very clearly it, it, it don't get me wrong, it is a totally original story and premise and show. There's nothing ripped off about it, but LaShawn Thomas very clearly drew inspiration from shows that were super popular in the in the like 90s anime scene and that were on TV around that in that era of anime um and i think i think i'm not sure you can go watch trigon anywhere you you might be able to go watch trigon on um Funimation, but if you have access to Trigun and you have watched any of this show, I would highly recommend you go look at Trigun. Um, But, so, what's really interesting is that in terms of how this show feels, overall, it feels kind of like um, Space Dandy, which is a show that I believe I've talked about in this podcast before. You can check the podcast feed. Um, But it it has this meandering quality for a while where they all seem like they're just with a whole cast, which is Sam, which is um, Philly the Kid is kind of the main male protagonist, he's the main character, so to speak, and then you have, um, Sam, who's a android, who's like a, who's like a android flash friend companion, who's looking for, um, this prince character, who you late, who you meet kind of in parallel eventually, and then you have um, Casey Turnbuckle, who is a kind of... I, they don't get into Casey's backstory, but Casey Turnbuckle is is also a robot like Sam, but she's much more clearly a robot, and she also draws from the kind of androgynous design language of a character like Ed from um, Cowboy Bebop. But 
what the reason why I say it feels like space dandy is because it's got it's got similar proclivities in its storytelling in that it for a couple of its episodes it just focuses on look at the hijinks these characters get up to and then they kind of move on, they move on they move on to the next episode which is a more main story episode focused thing the difference with this show is space dandy space dandy never pretended to have an overarching plot it just it was primarily interested in telling like weird one-shot stories with every episode that usually ends up with the entire cast of Space Dandy dying horribly somehow. But um, Cannon Busters is um, interested in telling the story of... Oh, and you also have, I forgot to mention, you have a straight-up like a char- a variant of a character from Afro Samurai in this show in nine who's this like old drunk you're led to believe um deserter samurai character who honestly I wish they used more of in the first season because it feels like he shows up and is there for maybe two to three episodes and then he just like fucks off and just like like you guys are out of beer I'm gone um and I wish they had found the story had found a reason to keep him around because he was an interesting odd foil to the constant like bad temper of Philly the kid and so Basically, the overall story of this is Sam and Casey, who you're led to believe Sam met three days before the show starts, which is great, um, is are looking for the Prince of Vodka. And um, I, forget his, I forget his name, but he's not the most important character, so I'm not going to stress over it, and so they, I forget how they get it in their heads that, I don't think the show ever says, but they get it in their heads that, like, oh, we should find Philly the Kid, and he'll help get us to Vodka, or, um, I forget the name of the specific location they're going to, um, but, oh, and I should also mention, the name Cannon Busters is a play on the name Gunbuster. If you needed any idea of the fact that this is totally an anime conceived of by a black guy from America. Um, but, um, they need to get to a place so Sam can meet up with um, the Prince of Vodka, who is her best friend. And on along the way, she's like, I'm making, like, hundreds of friends all the time, but really, 
all she does is she, like, introduces herself, and then she holds her hand out for a handshake. And sometimes people shake her hand, sometimes people try. They, like, show that she has no concept of what a friend, what being a friend to someone is. She just has the vague concept of, like, programming of this is how you technically make friends. or th- And it starts with introducing yourself. But, um... So they ultimately find Philly the Kid. And what you find out about Philly the Kid is that he is immortal. But the way his immortality works is it's basically like a curse. So he can't, he can't ever die... But he does get hurt. But you led to believe that because he, um, which is actually a funny little interpretation of, I forget what the name of the Cowboy Bebop episode is, but there's a character, the Cowboy Bebop episode where you meet a kid who is secretly like hundreds of years old, like 400 years old. Because he was um, made immortal by the kind of um, in-world, I don't think it was a terrorist attack, but it was, it was the in-world um, like universal disaster that in Cowboy Bebop, which is the collapse of a warp gate, um, but this kid is like deeply evil and screwed up and Spike ends up killing him with like a magic like bullet or something but um if I had to guess I would say that like Philly the kid's immortality is most similar to that kid's immortality from that episode of Cowboy Bebop but um basically Philly the kid is immortal, but he every time he dies in the place that he died, like in the place that like the death originated, basically, a um tattoo of a number pops up. So, um by the time you meet him, I think he's up to like twelve like twenty four deaths and the death that he incurs when he's in the bar, when he's in this bar and these bounty hunters are after him, is somebody blows, like, a shotgun hole, like, the size of a tree stump through his body. And he... But what's interesting is he... If he stays down for a period of time and then he gets up, the hole closes, everybody and all the bounty hunters are like, oh, shit. You're you really are immortal, and he his reaction isn't like, and I think this is important because it is a fun character. It's a fun, interesting character moment. His reaction is like, yeah, isn't like, yeah, and that sucks. Yeah, yeah, and that really hurt you assholes. It's just like a he's like a he's like yeah, and you guys are fucked. Um. Because what that says to you is that says that he has gotten used to 
like dying and extreme pain over the 23 or so times he died or 24 at that point and he's just like nope this is what it is whatever like whatever killed me it's fine I'll come back from it um and when I say he's immortal I also mean like he if he gets an arm chopped off it grows back if like he gets like melted into mush he like reconstitutes um which I find really kind of hilarious because there's a scene later on when he's fighting Nine where Nine chops his arm off and his arm just grows back um but he it's very he's very just generally pissed off. And actually, this is a concept I've been thinking about a lot um, of, like, characters who are not good people. Like, um, a great example of a character like that is Revy from Black Lagoon or, um, what's another, or actually, in the same vein, um, Coco... Heckmachar from, um, or actually better, Casper Heckmachar, Heckmachar from Jormungand. He's just, like, Casper is just a piece of shit. <laughs> He's just the worst. Um, and the, and the show makes that clear to you. The, um, Jormungand, which I've done an episode on, makes that clear to you. And so does Black Lagoon, which I've also done an episode on. Both of those shows make it clear to you that, like, look, like, both of these people are reprehensible, terrible people. An- another a great example from um, Black Lagoon is actually a character like um, any of the mob bosses, like Balanka or, um, I think his name is Mr. Chen. They are just, like, very clearly scum-of-the-earth terrible people. And it it takes a lot to write. It Actually, it takes less than, I think, people realized at a point to write a character who's a bad person that you still empathize with and that you still like. Because there are a lot more characters like that being written in popular media now. Um, the most well-known is actually, um, Tony Stark. Tony Stark, not by the end of his, spoiler alert, life in Avengers, but certainly in, in the first, in the beginning of the first Iron Man movie, he is a total shitbag. (laughs) And then they let you spend time with the character and you kind of grow attached to him and he becomes... And because he's got so much personality and Robert Downey Jr. makes him so likable even though he's a total shitbag. You you feel for the character after spending time with him and you're like, "Eh, I'd be okay if he was like a dirtbag drunk womanizing asshole for this entire thing. Uh, now, the 
his character arc changes that, certainly, but Billy the Kid, like Mr. Chen or Belenka or Revy or um, Kaspar, isn't, like, he isn't interested in changing himself. He's interested in just, like, being. And I think it's important that the show never tries to broach the idea of, like, making him a fundamentally different person. If he ever does anything that's, like, good, it feels like it is what his character would do and not this, like, molding of him into, like, a classical hero mold, which is really important. Um, I also think it's really important that they make all of these characters black. And they make, they make, but they don't make them, so, this is a problem I have with media in general, is that a lot of media is afraid to mix, is afraid to mix perspectives, so, like, you meet characters in the entire main cast of, um, Cannon Busters is African American black, but you meet characters who are white, you meet characters who are Hispanic, you meet characters who are from all different walks of life. You also meet kind of the full range of black experience in this world over the 12 episodes. You meet, um a character who is essentially, like, a human butcher, and she plays this, like, old black grandma, but she's really a fucking monster. Um, but... Oftentimes... Media is afraid to have... I don't even really want to call it popular media. I want to call it, like, generalized media. It either either feels to me, and this is a conflict I feel a lot because I am half African-American, half white. Um, but it feels like it's either for one race or the other. Like, um, if you watch most TV, you see... Oh, not so as much as you used to. It's getting better, <clears throat> but you see overwhelmingly white characters, and part of the reason for that is <clears throat> you have overwhelm an overwhelmingly white creative force. But on a channel like BET, which admittedly is stands for Black Entertainment Television, you see. It shows where it's like white people don't exist. And while that is entirely possible in the United States, I don't think that it's... I think that the reality of existing as a person of color in the world is that you will encounter people who are different than you. And it, it, almost by... <clears throat> just by the numbers, it's just, just the way it's going to happen. And I appreciate that this show's like, no, like, <clears throat> sorry, 
<coughs> I, I appreciate that this show is like, no, it's like, you know, this this Wild West world that, that Cannon Busters has established is, like, full of all kinds of people, of all kinds of races and creeds and nationalities. Um, but the... So, that really fascinating to me. But the other thing that's really interesting, other than the, like, racial aspect of it and the, um, and, and the, obviously the influences it draws from well, from very well-known, um, 1990s kind of classic anime, which makes me feel old saying it, um, is that the characters all, aside from Sam, who has a story reason for being very one-note, in the same reason almost that Melfina from Outlaw Star, (laughs) which she shares a lot in common with, it feels very one note and outlaw star. Um, the characters all feel dimensional. Like the point of Philly, of Philly the kid isn't that he is just a reprehensible asshole. They give him they they give you plot reasons and story reasons why he is the way he is and why he thinks the way he thinks. And ultimately, by the end of the 12-episode run, you realize that Philly the Kid is actually, is clearly a man who has had a life that has fucked him up emotionally and fucked him up in terms of where his barometer is for right and wrong. And he encountered, like, one of... And so... This is a really weird story. So in Cannon Busters, there's a lot of, like, world building that's done through indirect lore dumps, if that makes any sense. So you wonder at first why Philly the Kid is immortal. They don't explain it right away. And ultimately, what you find out in one episode is that Magic disappeared years ago. Magic is um go- is gone from the world. But on its way out, some sorcerers got pissed and like screwed with some people. And you later on meet this kid who like his arm can turn into like a crossbow, a gun, and all kinds of other stuff. But he also is stuck in the body of a, like, five-year-old. So he looks like he's five, but he's actually, like, 80 or something. And, um, you see how that screwed up his life and why he feels all fucked up about it, and it was all because he pissed off a, like, wayward sorcerer, where, um, 
Philly as a kid after having his family killed, you're led to believe, by the armed forces of Vodka, um, has his encounters, I think, a witch who grants him immortality because he wants immortality in order to um, get revenge for his for the death of his family as a kid. But what... So... Anime especially has a tendency to give a character like that this, like, never-ending drive where, like, oh, like, now I have immortality, now I can go do this. And then you get, like, a montage of them training for, like, decades, and then you just, like see them, like, show up in a hometown, like, next episode as, like, a, like, a teenage, generally, like, a teenager, and then the, like, story, the story proper starts. What you're led to believe is that Philly's immortality was, wasn't a blessing or a curse, it simply was, and he did what any, like, human would naturally do is he, you know, he squandered his life. He squandered, he squandered this almighty power he has, you know, just feeling fucked up about the family that his, about the fact that his family died, and that is, and that kind of, like, wayward life is what has informed his character at the point at which you meet him and it's just this show is much more interested in what would actually happen in the framework that it writes for itself than what like fantastical hero narrative it can write as a result of the framework for itself so, when I say that, I mean, um, you, you, you meet the prince, um, and his bodyguard, and you, they start those, they start that storyline in a very, with a flashback, and then a, and then when they when they're back to present, they follow the prince for a little bit, and as the two, um, as the two storylines get closer and closer, as the two like groups of characters get closer and closer to each other, they give you more of each group's like overall storyline. Uh, to the point where you kind of, well, there's a few side characters you don't know about, but you don't really need to, And but I'm sure they'll get into it in a second season, because I'm betting this show did very well. Um, I just, it, it's the kind of show, it's the kind of Netflix show where uh, I still see stuff about it on Twitter, so I'm sure it's done very well for itself but it um 
So that's this kind of story structure. And actually, another Netflix show that I'm watching called The Naked Director, which is which is fascinating, has the same kind of story structure of it tells, of it starts one character story, and then it focuses on another character on another character story, and it like, in the same way, by the end of the show, I still have one episode of that show to go. Um, it intertwines both character stories in a way where they can't be disconnected from each other. Um, the, the only, now, I want to talk about the only problem I have with the show, and the only problem I really have with the show is, um... It doesn't really have a great sense of scale because they so they um there's a there's a car they drive around in and it's this car that's clearly modeled after an old nineteen fifties um Cadillac with like the wing with like the wings with like the wings on the back and it's like um like, Miami electric pink, and it's got two bullhorns on it, and it's called Old Betsy, and Philly called it Old Betsy, and Old Betsy turns into a giant robot, basically. But you're led to believe that they can also live in this thing, because you see a couple shots of inside it, and there's a whole, like, cabin with bunk beds and, like, a TV, like, a kitchen scenario in it. But you have no sense, but because you only ever see it from certain angles, you have no sense of how big this thing is until, like, maybe the very end of the show. And so, I just, that drove me nuts because I'm like, how big is this friggin' thing? It can turn into a robot, but also they drive it as a car all the time and the steering the steering wheel is not enormous ba- basically what i'm saying is this thing is um it, if you focus on old betsy too much a you'll miss the point of the show b it it feels it feels like it's Almost, like, all the points of Old Betsy are almost connected to themselves, but not quite. (laughs) Um, but... That's really the only... Well, like, that's really the big problem I have with the show. Um, the, uh... There are some, like, odd character design choices. Like, um, one of the main bad guys is this robot girl who's just, like, she's wearing cut-off hot pants, jean shorts, and a bikini top, but then she just wears a trench coat? Which, I, like, it's it's a look, and I, un- and I understand the look is, like, 
born out of one that wants to be about movement. So, like, if if you... I want it to be about dramatic movement at that. But it just doesn't... It doesn't, like... It, it, it looks like, like, why are you wearing... Like, why are you wearing a trench coat? This makes no sense. Um, and then there's, like, the other thing that bugs me, and I'm not sure if it bugs me because I'm just not used to it, is, I forget the, I don't think they gave her a name yet, but, or I don't remember her name, but there's the, like, quote-unquote main henchman bad guy is this woman who's has no arms and her hands just magically float by her side, and she's got, like, two antenna orbs where her shoulders would be, so she just built very strange, because, <laughs> like, it's like an amputee with, like, Bluetooth beacons on her shoulders that control these, like, two-hand pods. God, that's awful. But, um... It just, it, it feels, it just feels weird because the way they use those hands in, like, the way she uses those hands in combat means that, like, oh, so, like, this is a choice. Like, it, it's not, it's not locked to be at a certain length. It's like they can fly around and through people. But that, those, so, like, I'd have to say, if this show has a weakness, it's in its, like, the visual design of the world doesn't work great all the time. I'm not, I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about, like, all the characters, I'm talking about really specific cases in which I'm sure there's reasoning behind it, but 12 episodes doesn't help you get, can't help you get into the reasoning. Like, I'm, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if this is the kind of show that wants to have the conversation about, like, oh, this, this hench, this henchwoman in a bikini and, uh, in a bikini top and a, um, and a trench coat is like it wants I wouldn't be surprised if that if this show wants to give reasons as to those why those choices are made I also wouldn't be a bit surprised if you get a whole episode about the woman with no arms but like floating hands about how she got that way and what that means for her as a character because this show seems like it's interested in that and by having a lot of cyborg robot characters in it you they have you get to have this conversation about bodies if you want to have it so like there are and also there's more than one androgynous character in this show there's um one, I forget her name, but they give it to which is awful to me, but there's this character who 
is like Lady Guile, but you don't know it until like the second to last episode of the show because there's no reason for you to A, the show pulls this like bait and switch at that point because up until that point Casey Turnbuckle is the only androgynous like character but you meet characters who've like identify who very clearly identifies women. And then especially in like the bad guy trio. In the bad guy trio you have um the character with the floating arms, you have the character wearing the like hot pants, bikini top and trench coat. But who very like you can see into the trench coat and you can see like, oh that's a bikini top. She's a she and then you meet this character who is voiced as if they are male for most of it. And then I, you get the reveal of, like, oh, that's a female character. And I shouldn't say they're voiced as male. I should say they're voiced as, like, non-gendered. Um, but it, that I just I found that interesting in a show that is very clearly aware of the race of its characters is clearly aware of their characters' past and backstories. They have the... So... So here's another frustrating thing. The way they... The way that they use the character Nine. And like I said, Nine is this drunk old man deserter samurai. Master samurai. Is that they introduce him in an episode... And then he, like, joins the crew. But then, I think he's around for, like, not even an episode. Or, I think he's around for not even the next episode. They dispatch of him. But they dispatch of him with a Pete, with, by detailing out his backstory. And then he just leaves. And... You're led to believe that he's off doing his own thing until he shows back up in, like, the final episode, I think. But it it ends up being disappointing because it ends up, I think, not using that character to its full, to his full potential as, like, a narrative piece because he doesn't... You kept him around just long enough for the audience to like him and then to just long enough for you to explain his backstory and then they do away with him until until it's time for him to show up and like save the day in the last episode or like or like save a, another side character in the last episode. And that just, it feels, it feels like character building for, in service of the plot in a way that's not great. Um, but, um, so those are my thoughts on Cannon Busters. I had a lot of fun watching it. I had more fun watching it than I thought I would at the beginning. Um, but I do remember when I first saw the, like, promo art for it, or, or, like, the 
and the trailer, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And my first thought was like, I wonder if it has any relation to Gunbuster. Or, weirdly, I think my other thought was like, I wonder if there's any relation to El Hazard, because it looks a lot like El Hazard. Um, but I would totally recommend you go check it out if you have a Netflix subscription, because of course you do. Um, but on that note, I hope if you like this podcast, you can subscribe for new episodes every week. I do my best to release at new episodes every week. But until then, you've been listening to Lunchbox Radio. My name is Alex, and I'll talk to you next time. Yeah.